Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. How many of you know Elijah? Elijah was a prophet of God. He was a man of God, anointed by God, who worked with the Holy Ghost, who prophesied and did all kinds of miracles. He had the anointing of the Lord. He had the Holy Spirit working with him, which we know as Christians because the apostles and the Lord speak about how the Holy Spirit is the one that spoke by the prophets of old, right? We've spoken about that at length. Well, Elijah had the Holy Spirit. He had the, he had the Holy Ghost working with him, and he was a prophet. But how many of you know that throughout the Lord's, uh, throughout the Lord working with Elijah during his lifetime, he had many times of appointment with Elijah where he strengthened him or sustained him or gave him what he needed to continue in that ministry with God. Now, we're not speaking about Elijah this morning. We're speaking about you. We're speaking about us. We're speaking about the church. But faith... The faith that Elijah walked in is not one thing that happened at one time. It is an act. It is something that he walked out every day and every step of his life. Elijah is an excellent Old Testament type of the new covenant, of the new life that we have, of Christianity. Why? Because he was caught up at the end of his ministry to heaven and is still alive today. He worked with the Holy Ghost. He walked with the Holy Ghost. He was sustained by God, right? James refers to him when he's talking about our ministry as Christians. And he says Elijah was a a man subject to like passions that we are. But he spoke and the heavens were closed. And then he spoke and the heavens were opened. James is not talking about that because he's talking about something that Elijah did in the Old Testament that's no longer available. No, he's making a point about the fact that Even Elijah, who was a human, like you are a human, spoke and shut the heavens, and it did not rain. And then he spoke, and the heavens opened, and it rained. So he's talking about your authority. Well, how much more authority do you have as a born-again believer than Elijah did as someone who was looking forward to the promise? But even Elijah who was anointed by God, who was obviously a prophet of God, was nourished at times. He was fed by ravens. He was sent to the widow woman, and his word that he came to the widow woman with got on that bread and that oil, 
and made it last for the whole time that he needed it to last. So even though the anointing was on him, the anointing got on his food and what he was eating to make it last a supernatural amount of time. As you know, it multiplied. So when everybody else didn't have food, they had food that did not run out. But that wasn't it. Because we see throughout his ministry, the Lord ministering to him in different ways to sustain him. Not just in natural food, but he outran horses. And the Lord empowered him to do that at that time. After, after the showdown with the prophets of Baal, angels came and fed him. And he ran off the strength of that food for many days. And so even though Elijah was anointed and Elijah was a prophet and Elijah was working with the Lord, the Lord still ministered to him in diverse ways over the course of his ministry so that he would have the strength to do that ministry. There was various agencies and ways that the Lord, the Lord ministered to him. Right? The church and the high call that we have, Elijah is a type of that. And in the same way, there are sources of grace, that is divine ability, in the church to sustain us, to fuel us, to power us so that we can fulfill the high call. The church calls these the mysteries of the church. But the point is that you have the new birth if you're a child of God. Just like Elijah had the calling of God and the Holy Ghost on him, working on him. But in the same way that the Lord ministered to him throughout his life so that he would be sustained and empowered in order to do what the Lord called him to do. We as Christians... Our walk does not end the moment that we become Christians. It begins the moment we become Christians. And the Lord sustains us and empowers us. And it's not just something in the natural. It's something supernatural. There was no natural food that could give you the power to outrun horses. There was no natural food that you could go off for the number of days that Elijah went off that food that the angel brought him. And so those activities were supernatural. There was no natural oil or natural meal that you can keep pouring out of and never gets any less. So those were things that were operating supernaturally. And in the same way, the things that the Lord instituted in the church during his earthly ministry to be sources of power for us to be sources of renewal for us, to be sources of strength for us, are not natural things. They're not natural observances. They are supernatural things. They have the power of God in them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that is what we are going to talk about today. You know, the book of Acts talks about them continuing in the apostles' doctrine. Right? How many of you want to continue in the apostles' doctrine? 
how many of you want to continue in what Jesus instructed his apostles to instruct the church to do? If the apostles did something and they recognized the power of something, how many of you think it would be foolish of us as followers of Jesus today to ignore what the apostles taught when it's the apostles that delivered the teachings of Jesus to us today? We would not have the Bible, we would not have the teachings, we would not have the church if it wasn't for the apostles because that's how the Lord did it, right? But the devil, his whole thing is he wants to rob you of what God has promised for you. He wants to stop you from receiving what the Lord has paid for for you. And if he can convince you that what you have is not valuable, that what you've been handed is empty or valueless or does not contain any meaning in your life, no, no power or ability to accomplish, no nothing, then he can keep you from profiting off of that thing. If you are given an inheritance, let's say just a natural object, an antique, by your parents or your grandparents, and you think that it is valueless, it's just some old garbage, and you throw it away, you profit nothing from it. Now, who knows? Maybe it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars if you took it to the antique road show or something like that. But if you don't know that it's valuable, then you cannot profit from it. And so the, so, so, and so the devil has launched a continued crusade against the things that were delivered to us, the church, to try to convince us that what we were handed is valueless. To try to convince the church that the things that they received from the first generation of Christians are not valuable. Because as long as you think something is empty, or something is ceremony, or something is religious observance with no power in it, you will not profit from it. Listen, Elijah needed the faith of God to be in him in order for him to command the heavens to shut. That was something that God inspired, that God empowered him to do. It wasn't just that Elijah was a man that happened to have a lot of faith by chance. He received that from the Lord. If the power of God was not in Elijah, then he could shout at the clouds all day and nothing would happen. Someone else could copy exactly what Elijah did and not receive any of the results because the faith of God was not in them. We see that happening in the New Testament with the sons of Sceva who try to cast out devils by Jesus whom Paul preaches, right? There's no formula that you can copy and do in the natural that will achieve supernatural results, It is only the supernatural power of God in something that makes it effective, that makes it powerful to us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So so what are the mysteries, the mysteries of the church? Now, the word mystery means uh, something that was hidden but is now revealed when it's used in the Bible. Paul talks about the mysteries of the church, but we're not talking about mystery in the general sense. Now, of course, mystery is a, has a slightly different 
meaning in our language today. We're talking specifically about the things that were instituted in the church. They're called by some the sacraments. There's usually numbered seven of them. And they are things that are in the church, that we do in the church, and are sources of supernatural results in our lives. Now, if they're not supernatural results in our lives, then there's no reason to do them. How many of you know that nothing that was instituted by the Lord is empty religion? Jesus did not come to give us a new book of rubrics. He came to transform our lives. He came to change us to be like him. He came to empower us to destroy all the works of the enemy. So when Jesus breaks bread, right, and says, this do in remembrance of me, he's not doing that so that you can have something else to check off of your list. He's doing it because it's powerful. There's nothing that he directed us to do that is empty or meaningless, right? Hallelujah. Well, these things that we talk about, the mysteries, the sacraments, these are the things that were directed by the Lord for us to do in the church. And just like the word mystery, when it's used in the Bible, talks about a revealed thing, a something that you receive not by knowledge, but by revelation. The the sacraments, as we've received them, preach the gospel. The very way that they are structured is structured to get a revelation over to you of what it is that God did, that the Lord did, what he paid for for you. Those uh, structures are not by accident. Those activities are not by accident. They are revelations of the truth that's present throughout the gospel. They are mirrored in all the teachings of Jesus. But we, they are instituted to be done in a particular way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, what am I talking about? What am I talking about? Uh, as, a, as a primer, let's start in the book of Acts. We'll start in chapter 9. Now, I'm going to be referencing a lot of scripture, uh, but we don't have time to go to all of these scriptures because we may actually be here until the Lord comes back if we do. (laughs) Or at least until victory. Uh, So I will give you the references uh, so that you can look them up later if you want to write them down. And I'll just read them to you. And you can trust me that they're in the Bible. Or you can not trust me and then you can look them up and then you can repent. (laughs) So, Book of of Acts, great place to look at the operation of the early church because the Book of Acts is about the operation of the early church. The beginning of chapter 9, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest... Okay, so we've got Saul here. Later, Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He's an a incredible man of God. This was before all of that. At this point, he's still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the people of God. The, 
Pentecost has already happened. The church is there. The gospel is spreading. And here is Shaul still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, if he found any Christians, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. How many of you know the story? As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, what's the Lord talking about here? Saul had consented to the death of the first martyr of the church. He was there. Now, it is obvious from what the Lord says to him here that his conscience was fighting against him. He felt that what he was doing was wrong. But he had such a religious fervor for the group that he thought was correct that he was fighting his conscience in order to fight the church. His conscience was convicting him, and he was fighting against what, on the inside, he knew was true. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which, sojourn, which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And now we come to the church. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Hallelujah. And Ananias answered the Lord and said, Lord, I have heard of this man. This is, this is funny. So here you have Ananias. Now, Ananias uh, is recorded in the histories of the church to be one of the 70. How many of you are familiar with when the Lord sent the 70 out and gave them authority to cast out devils and heal the sick? The 70 apostles. And so he is referred to as the Apostle Ananias. How many of you did not know that? He's not only the Apostle Ananias, but later on, after this event, 
he became the first bishop of Damascus. So this is a man of God who has walked with the Lord while he was alive. And the Lord comes to him after his resurrection and tells him in a vision, go, there's this man. (laughs) There's this man, his name is Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is like, you know, I've heard, I've heard of him. I've heard the name, right? Ananias said, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said, oh, wow, thanks for informing me. And nobody had let me know about that. No. The Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So why, are we, why is this our point of scripture that we're talking about? Because Paul, Saul, is a chosen vessel of the Lord. The Lord appears to him personally and reveals himself to him. He also, apparently later in a vision, told Paul that a man named Ananias would come and lay hands on him. So the Lord is communicating with Paul. The Lord is already communicating with him. He's talking to him. He has called him. He's a chosen vessel. Why didn't the Lord lay hands on him to heal him? Why didn't the Lord baptize him? Why didn't the Lord tell him your sins are forgiven you? Why did the Lord send him on his way and then call up Ananias? Why did he tell Paul to wait? There's a man named Ananias coming. And then he called Ananias and he was like, hey, Ananias, go lay hands on Paul that he would receive his sight and baptize him. Why didn't Jesus do it himself? Paul... We know from his later writings that he ended up basically going off by himself for a long time and the Lord ministered to him. The Lord preached to him the gospel and then he went to the apostles to confirm that what the Lord told him was correct. So the Lord is clearly capable of telling him whatever he wants to tell him. And yet, he sends him to Damascus, the city where he was supposed to come and take away the Christians in chains, and tells him to wait for a Christian to come to him, for a member of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, to come to him. Obviously, Ananias was filled with the Holy Ghost. Obviously, Ananias was flowing in the things of God. The Lord came to him in a vision. Ananias is one of the Christians that Paul was coming to arrest. 
So why did the Lord want Ananias to come to Paul? Why did Paul need Ananias? When the Lord had called him as a chosen vessel, when the Lord had appeared to him in person, when the Lord would preach to him the gospel that he hadn't heard of any other person, and then he could go and confirm that what the Lord told him was true with the people that were there when it happened. Well, that's what we're talking about this morning. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Could the, Jesus not fill him with the Holy Ghost? I mean, the Holy Ghost knows where he lives. Why, why didn't the Holy Ghost just, you know, come and take care of it himself? <laughs> and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And so Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, as we call it, right? His salvation, the moment he realized that Jesus was Lord, was followed by this meeting with Ananias and being baptized into the church. And we spoke about this a little bit before. Uh, I'm going to go, go, you can stay where you are and just listen. I'm going to go forward to Acts 22. Paul, uh, when he's giving his testimony to the multitudes who've just beaten him, uh, says of this event, and one Ananias a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, Damascus, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldst hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so Paul came into the church. Paul was baptized into the church by Ananias. And it was not on the road that he became a part of the church. He had not had any conversations with any member of the church. The church's report concerning him was still that he was coming to lock them up. Ananias had heard the word that he was on his way. He hadn't even made it to Damascus yet, but Ananias knew that he'd gotten the legal authority to come to Damascus and arrest the Christians and take them to Jerusalem. Right? So at that, my goodness. So the Lord sends Ananias and Ananias says, receive your sight. And Paul gets healed. And he says, arise and be baptized. And 
Let your, and your sins will be forgiven. And Paul's sins are forgiven when he's baptized. He's reconciled to the church, right? He's baptized into the church. How many of you realize that it's probably pretty rough for Paul those days when he realizes that the God who he has been attempting to serve his entire life, he has been acting out against. And he has been capturing and killing people who were truly servants of God. Imagine what happens when you have that level of guilt and condemnation if there is no reconciliation. How could Paul go and start ministering in the church and teaching people about Jesus when he was the one capturing and killing Christians? No, Paul had to be reconciled to the church. And so it was Ananias that came and baptized him. It was Ananias that spoke to him and his eyes opened. And what do we see here? We see the sacraments, right? We see the sacraments. So, but there, and there's a very particular thing. I told you that the mysteries, they all preach. What is it that they preach? They all preach two things. They preach the incarnation. God became a man and walked as we do. He died for us so that we could be resurrected with him. He became like us so that we could be like him. He took on a human nature so that he could give us the divine nature. Not so that he could come teach us something so that we could join an organization that he founded or a school, or, or some other group. No, so that we could receive what the Lord refers to as the new birth. Being born again, regenerated. Generated. Regenerated is literally born again. It's literally being, you have a new genesis. You have a new beginning. You have a new source. That's what Christ came to deliver. That's what he came to do. That's why the incarnation. So they preach that, which is the foundational truth of Christianity. And they teach the unity of the body of Christ, which is just as much a foundational truth of Christianity as the new birth. It, and I know not everybody accepts that, but it has to be the case. There is no other way to read the Bible and understand it. Because if we are the body of Christ, Christ does not have more than one body. And if we are joint heirs with him, and if we are recipients of his nature because we are joined to him, because we are crucified with him and we rose again with him, that can't be the case unless we're all also joined with each other. Because how many of you know there's not more than one body of Christ? There's just the one body of Christ. And so there's no way to be a part of the body of Christ without being a part of everyone else who is a part of the body of Christ. 
And of course, beyond that, we have Jesus' prayer that he himself prayed that we would all be one as him and the Father are one. As him and the Father are one. And so it is an inescapable, it is an inescapable reality of the gospel. You can't get away from it. And if you do get away from it, you lose access to the power that Paul was given access to here. Now we're going to go through each of the seven that are usually called the sacraments or the mysteries. There are gifts in the church of diverse kinds. The Lord has all kinds of ways of getting the power of God over into your life. Just like people were healed by the shadow of Peter. Just like cloths were taken from the body of Paul and people were healed by them. There's a great many ways that the Lord operates in the church. He can operate however he wants to operate in the church. But there are certain things that were instituted and were practiced by the first generation of Christians and every generation of Christians after. And they preach the gospel by their very practice. The first, how many of you could probably guess, is baptism. The Bible says, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. The Lord, when he gave the Great Commission, told them to go and preach the gospel to every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Not only that, but during his earthly ministry, Jesus, Jesus' ministry baptized more people than John's ministry did. Baptism is an essential part of the gospel. John's practice of baptism, even, was a precursor of the coming of Christ. He was a prophet that was sent to prepare the way, to prepare people for Christ. And when Christ came, he said, even though the Lord was younger than him in the natural, there's one coming who's greater than me because he existed before me. Jesus was younger than John in the natural. But how many of you know that Jesus existed a lot longer than John did? Because he is from eternity. Hallelujah. Here's a few things, right? John talks about, in the book of John, Jesus' baptism ministry. How many of you remember that Jesus himself was baptized? That before he started his ministry... I mean, you want to talk about Paul being chosen of God. How many of you know that Jesus was more chosen than Paul was? Jesus, the Lord, was about as chosen as you could possibly be. But he walked and he ministered as a man anointed by God. He was fully man, just as much man as if he was not God. And just as much God as if he was not man. But before he began his ministry, he came to be baptized by John. John didn't even want to baptize him because John knew who he was. John was like, I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. Right? But Jesus was like, no, baptize me. This is is important. This has to happen. Right? (laughs) 
And of course, you have the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Ghost descends in the form of a dove. It was, a, it was a, the best baptism ever. But what happened after that? Jesus went and a number of his disciples were previously people who were following John. They were waiting because John was talking about the one who would come. And then John said, there he is. And they were like, okay, let's go. Right? So some of the 12 were disciples of John before, before they came to the knowledge that Jesus was the one that he was preaching about. Right? And in the book of John, in chapter 3, it says, you don't have to go there. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. It's very interesting. It actually mentions also that John was there baptizing as well. But... Jesus came with his disciples and he tarried there and he baptized. Now, John, the writer, explains this a little bit later on. And I think this is very relevant uh, for people. Uh, In chapter 4, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, right? He instructed Jesus to leave the area because they were going to come after him. But then it says, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. So this is something that was happening during Christ's earthly ministry. He directed his disciples to baptize. And they baptized more people than John baptized. Why did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, he's still directing his disciples to baptize. I think it's very interesting how many of you know Jesus was not doing what he was doing willy-nilly. He was doing what he was doing with purpose. If he himself directed his disciples to baptize and the people that came to learn under him were baptized by his disciples, how many of you know that that should tell you something? about the way that the Lord planned on working with his people, on the way that the Lord planned on working with his church. There was nobody that got to say that they were baptized by Jesus himself. All of them were baptized by the disciples of Jesus, by the brethren, by the Adelphos, right? But that's not my major point. My major point is this. Baptism was set in place by Jesus during his earthly ministry and then confirmed after his resurrection. So it's something that pretty much every Christian, there are certain parts of the mysteries that people have tried to cast out and throw out and say that's not something that Jesus commanded. They're wrong. We'll get into that. But everybody agrees about baptism. Because you don't have any really other option. Because it's right there in the Great Commission. And so they are being baptized for the remission of sins. Now, How many of you know that there is nothing natural about water that forgives sins? You can take as many baths as you want to take and get as clean on the outside as you want to get, and it will do nothing to your soul or your spirit. Might be relaxing. 
People might say cleanliness is close to godliness, but in reality, it is not. No amount of natural bathing will make you more like God. No. What happens in baptism is not natural. What happens in baptism is supernatural. Right? Uh, um... In Colossians, Paul refers to it as the circumcision that is not made with hands. Right? Colossians 2.11 says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made with, without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And so in baptism, you are buried with Christ. And when you come up out of that water, you are risen with Christ. The old man is dead. And you have inherited the new nature, the new man, the new birth. But it's called the circumcision that's not made with hands. Tell me, when you were baptized, were there human beings with hands there? Was the tub made with hands? I mean, maybe you were baptized in the Jordan and it was not made by man's hands. But it was a man who was there baptizing you. Ananias was a man with hands. He was not an armless man. And so the baptism physically into the water is something that was facilitated by man's hands. But the baptism, what happened in the baptism was not the work of man. It was the work of God. And so the circumcision, that, that cleansing, that covenant that you inherit when you are buried... How many of you know that only, only the supernatural can make something like that effective in your life? You can't go outside and dig a hole and bury yourself and say, I'm buried with Christ and now I've risen from the dead. <laughs> and accomplish anything in the natural, change anything about your spirit or your eternal destination or your nature as a human being. You cannot designate that something means something and then do it and, it and it accomplishes that thing. Right? In the natural, without supernatural power. And so baptism is something that was instituted by God. It was instituted by God and it is empowered by God. Well, how many of you know that Paul and no other human being in history could baptize themselves? Baptism requires someone to perform the baptism. This is why Jesus did not baptize people himself because he was, he was making it very clear. So in his earthly ministry, when Jesus is here, he has his disciples baptizing people. 
So when you're baptized into the body, your baptism is not lesser than the baptism that was occurring in Jesus's ministry. He makes it clear because every person that was baptized was baptized by the church, by the disciples of God. And yet baptism is ordained as the way that you are saved. The way that your sins are forgiven. Listen, Jesus could have done what he did. The Lord could have done what he did any way the Lord wanted to. If the Lord wanted to establish a new birth that was nothing but an individual decision and not build any kind of church, then he would not have made it that baptism is something done by the church and then said it was required. There's only so much cognitive dissonance that you can keep in your head at the same time. If baptism is required and it is only ever performed by the disciples, even when Jesus was walking here, well, not here, but, you know, there. I mean, geographically, right? Even when Jesus was on the earth, it was performed by the church, right? Okay, so if Jesus instituted that as the means of grace. He was not bound by making water the thing. How many of you know God is not bound by, by water? There, there is nothing in the natural about water that has anything to do with the forgiveness of sins. And so the form of the mystery, because that's what it is. It's not some natural thing that does something. It is a supernatural thing. That is why we call it a mystery. Because there's a supernatural change that happens that is separate from any natural understanding of what is occurring. And how many of you who've been baptized know that you felt it? Right? Something happened on the inside of you. Well, that was supernatural. That activity, that institution that the Lord established is a source of divine grace. That is supernatural power. It has an effect on you. It changes something about you. It does something supernatural. But my point is the Lord was not stuck with that. The Lord could have decided to institute anything he wanted to institute or to do what he did anyway that he wanted to do it. But instead, he did it in a way that would preach what he was establishing in the church. And so he could have made baptism something you did by yourself. He could have said, go out on your own, pray to God, dunk yourself in the water. Did did anybody baptize Naaman? How many of you know about Naaman? Naaman was a leper. He was sent sent to dip in the Jordan seven times. Why couldn't Jesus just say, go find a river and dip in it seven times and you will be saved? Why couldn't Jesus say, Go find a river and dip in it seven times and you will be saved. Why wasn't that the way that baptism was structured? Do you not believe that Jesus could have done that 
If that was what he was building, if that is what he was doing, if that is what the limit of the gospel was. Because Naaman's dip is a type of baptism. But how many of you know that Naaman's, Naaman's sins were not forgiven him and he wasn't resurrected with Christ when that happened? That was not a Christian baptism. It was a foreshadow of what God was planning to happen. So when he establishes baptism, he establishes it in a way that does not only preach the incarnation. That does not only minister the incarnation, which is that you are buried with Christ in baptism. And you are resurrected with Christ in baptism. And so it does not only preach that you receive what Jesus did when he became a man, what he paid for when he died, but it also preaches the thing that he prayed for when he was on this earth, which is the unity of the body of Christ. And so you're not only baptized into him, but you're baptized into his body. You're baptized into the church. Well, I'm telling you that all seven of the institutions that were instituted by him in his ministry and by the apostles preach those same two things. And so after that, after that, after baptism, what do we have? We have what is called the Christmation or the Confirmation. And what is the Christmation? It is when the Holy Ghost enters into you and you get baptized with the Holy Ghost. Christmation comes from the word Chris or anointing. Christ is the anointed one. Just like Christ is the anointed one, you are anointed with the Holy Ghost, just like at Pentecost. Now, in many areas in the church, when they do the Christmation, they actually anoint people with physical oil. But how many of you know that in other places, you just lay on hands and you, and you call on the Holy Spirit? How many of you might have you gotten your confirmation in the middle of your baptism? Nobody had to say anything, and the Holy Ghost entered in. How many of you know Cornelius? Right? His, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost the same way that they were at Pentecost and began to speak in other tongues. And so there's different uh, ways to administer the Holy Ghost. But what you see in that sacrament, in that mystery, is the Holy Ghost indwelling the child of God, moving in to the child of God. It is a supernatural thing, just like the baptism is. Just like the baptism is. But what does it preach? What does it show? Ephesians says there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. What spirit is Paul talking about when he says there's one spirit? There's one body. There's one spirit. How many of you have one body? How many of you have one spirit? So it makes perfect sense that there would be one spirit in the one body, right? 
So the spirit that we're talking about is the Holy Ghost. So you can't even be filled with the Holy Ghost without being unified to everybody else that's filled with the Holy Ghost. Because there's just the one spirit. There's not an individual Holy Ghost for each and every person. There's one spirit in the one body, right? In 1 Corinthians, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul said this, and it's a lot like what Irenaeus said later on that we read, when he said all the churches all over the world, in all of the different countries, with all of their different languages, nonetheless speak as if they had one mind, one heart, and one mouth. And so the infilling of the Holy Ghost, the Christmation, not only shows the incarnation, because the Lord pours out on you what God poured out on him. The Lord empowers you with the same thing that God empowered him with. Right? How many of you know that Jesus is God? We're not getting into the whole Trinitarian thing because I don't have the time this morning. But, but, but he walked as a man anointed by God. Well, what are you? After Christmation, you are a man or woman anointed by God. That's what that word means. Christmation is the anointing. And it's also the confirmation. It is a confirmation of the new birth, right? Being filled with the Holy Ghost and and then in our case with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. It's a confirmation. So when Cornelius and his house were filled with the Holy Ghost, the church in Jerusalem said, who are we to argue with God? Because it was a confirmation of the new birth. If they received the Holy Ghost, then it showed that they had been born again. And so it's a confirmation. But it doesn't just join them to God. It joins them to each other. And, and in fact, it's, it's, it's not even just the confirmation. It's the very method by which the church in the first century was joined together. Because think about Pentecost. It was by the Holy Ghost that they preached in the native tongues of every one of those people. And so people that had nothing in common in the natural suddenly were one voice and one tongue and one heart and one body and one mind. And so it's the confirmation of the new birth, the confirmation of being joined to the body of Christ. And it is the very method, the very avenue by which we remain in unity. Right? And uh, the next the next one is Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Um, James says it. He says, he says, confess your sins or your faults one to another. Right? And we actually talked about it. He talks about Elijah because he says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth fruit. And so he uses Elijah as a type of Christians praying, as a type of the church praying, as a type of those who have been anointed praying, right? That he talks about confess your sins one to another. Jesus told, uh, Jesus told the disciples, whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. Tell me, did Thomas die for your sins? Did Peter die for your sins? Did Andrew die for your sins? Do any of them have the ability of themselves to forgive sins? No. When Jesus was speaking to the man that they lowered in through the ceiling in his meeting, he said, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, you are rise up and walk. But I said this so that you would know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And so the power to forgive sins just like baptism, just like everything else, is supernatural. It is a supernatural thing. And it is, but yet, 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 it is predicated upon you forgiving your brother. Upon you forgiving people that sin against you. And it, so, (laughs) because it says, In Matthew, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so you have the incarnation being preached in that the disciples are told you Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. That's not by their power. That's not by their sacrifice. It's by the Lord's power that they're given the ability to do that. But it is also preaching the unity. Because if you do not forgive those who trespass against you, if you have a problem with people who have hurt you in church or in other places and you do not forgive them, then the Lord cannot forgive you. And so you have the unity being preached and you have the incarnation being preached because that's an authority that the Lord gave to the church. Why would he do that? Because the church is his body. The church are his agents in the earth. The Lord didn't just do all of the work himself, said, say the sinner's prayer and die and go to heaven. No, he took you from what you were and he changed what you were to be like him. And he wants to empower you to walk like him. But just like Elijah needed empowerment to outrun horses, 
Just like Elijah needed food to last on for many days. Just like Elijah was fed by ravens and fed by the widow. You need the power of God to be supplied in your life in order for you to walk in the high call. It's not just enough to be a prophet named Elijah. It has to be something that you continue in. Right? And my goodness, my goodness, incarnation. And even when we're talking about forgiveness, we're, that's talking about the incarnation. Because we're not just talking about your sins being paid for and covered. Because if that were the case, then you would not have the ability to stop sinning afterwards. Because you would be the same person who sinned the first time. But no, Paul says, speaking about that, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? And so that institution of the church preaches the incarnation just as it preaches the unity. Now, communion, I hope that all of you could recognize immediately how communion preaches the unity and the incarnation. I think that that's pretty clear. We, we, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Incarnation. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Communion is literally the word participation. And so it says, is it not the participation of the blood of Christ? Is it not the participation of the body of Christ? We are partakers. We are participating in. We are joined to the body of Christ. That one bread. And that is why we are one bread. Are you, are you seeing the pattern with every single one of these things? Whether you're talking about baptism, you're not just baptized into Christ, you're baptized into the church. You're talking about being filled with the Holy Ghost. They were not filled with the Holy Ghost until someone came and laid hands on them or anointed them to be filled with the Holy Ghost in almost every case, right? Reconciliation is not just reconciliation to God only. It's reconciliation to the body of Christ. Just like Paul had to be reconciled because he had done some things against the body of Christ. Can you imagine the Lord won't forgive you unless you forgive Paul? And you're a Christian living in the first century? You want to talk about being hurt in church? someone you know was killed was martyred by this man and then what he gets saved and suddenly you're going to forgive him 
God did. What's your problem? Do you believe in the new birth or do you not? Do you believe that that is the same Paul that martyred those people? Or do you believe that it is a new Paul who has been born into Christ? It's a package deal. It is a package deal. You don't get to be a Christian in the first century without forgiving Paul. It's a package deal. There's a whole lot of Christians that really need to check themselves today because there are people that said something rude to them. They didn't even stone them. They just said something inconsiderate and ungodly or they said something godly and the person got offended because they were convicted. In either case, you can't even be forgiven unless you forgive. The reconciliation is in multiple directions. Right? And the communion. Why did the Lord institute the communion on that day? On that, on that, that last supper which wasn't really the last supper because we've been partaking in that last supper for 2000 years. Why did he institute that? He didn't institute it to be an empty observance. He instituted it to be a supernatural supply of grace into our lives. You know, doctor talks about this all the time. That the word of God says, Paul said to the Christians, many of you are sick and many die young because you do not discern what is in the bread and the blood. You think you're just doing something in the natural. And so it's a condemnation instead of a blessing. It's not just ineffective, it's effective in reverse. So if not discerning what's in it kills you, then discerning what is in it will keep you alive. Forget many are sick and die young for this cause. Many of you are healed and live a long time because you rightly discern what is in that thing. But so so we have all of these things that we do that are supernatural and provide a supernatural result, but they also preach the gospel. They also preach the good news and they tell us about the incarnation and they tell us about the unity of the church. Because when you get right down to it, those are the same thing. You cannot be joined to God without being joined to the church. You cannot be joined to Christ without being joined to the church because Christ is joined to the church. So if you're joined to Christ, you have to be joined to the church, right? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. There is no strife or war in Christ's body. So you either get in or you get out. Why? Marriage. The next mystery. 
the next mystery. Marriage isn't just an earth, is not an earthly institution. Not according to Jesus. You got people standing up there. You got people standing up there officiating the vows, at least in this country, saying, you know, till, till death do you part or, you know, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Whose quote is that? Who are those people quoting? Jesus, G- a.k.a. God. Right? Right? What? Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read? It's amazing. Do you not read? (laughs) Jesus said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore, they are no more twain. They're not two anymore. They're one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Is that something natural? Can a marriage license make two people one person? Only God can do that. It is a supernatural thing. It is a great mystery. As the Apostle Paul says. Right? Who instituted that? Was that instituted by people after Jesus? You you got people who are Christians today that are arguing that marriage was not instituted by the Lord. Apparently, have you read? Do you not read? According to Jesus, God instituted marriage. (laughs) Ephesians says, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Who's that? That's you. That's you. That you would be holy and without blemish is the goal, right? So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Hallelujah. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the mystery of marriage, the sacrament of marriage preaches the gospel. Because you are unified to Christ and are one flesh with him. Same as baptism. Listen, I just want to be clear. There are people, and Jesus talks about it immediately after he says what he says here. 
that are called by God to be single. That are empowered by God to be single. And if you are single because the Lord called you to be single, then he empowers you to do that. And it's something that will be a blessing to you. And so you're not devoid of that blessing if you're single, if it's the Lord that gave you the ability to do that. No, you're one body with the church. You are joined to Christ just the same, right? Just like Paul chose to be. So Paul is the one talking about marriage here and showing how it's like Christ in the church, but he's not married. But he recognizes that that sacrament is a holy thing. How many of you realize that in all of these things, people have tried to rob them of their power? People have tried to remove them. People have tried to remove them from the church entirely. To take your marriage out of the hands of God and say that wasn't instituted by God. That's something from the state. And now the state is the God of your marriage. The state holds authority over your marriage. How many of you know that ain't the gospel? That ain't what Jesus preached. Christian marriage is distinct. The state doesn't even have to exist for marriage to exist. It's a sacrament. It's a mystery in the church. All those non-Christians can have whatever organization or legal structure or rights they want. But Christians believe in marriage as defined by Jesus. And that marriage is something that's not done by any man. And that no man has any right to do away with. It is something that is done by God. Hallelujah. It's a basic fundamental part of Christian life. You have to recognize what that is. And it preaches the gospel. It preaches the incarnation. And it preaches the unity of the body of Christ. Right? And we spoke about, we, I mentioned how the, the, actually, I don't think I mentioned it. We talked, when we were talking about baptism, do you know baptism is called by many in the early church the womb of the new birth? The womb of the new birth. Do you remember when I told you that word brethren that's translated brethren in the Bible is actually adelphos from the same womb? Womb is Delphos. And so it's from that that you're born into the church. They're the brethren because they're all baptized into the same baptism. Like Paul said, there's one spirit, there's one body, there's one baptism. And so every single one of these sacraments, and I'm going to go through the remaining ones rather quickly. After that, we have what James also talks about in chapter 5, which we quoted part of chapter 5. But he said, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. What is happening? Why didn't James say, is there any sick among you? Let him call on the name of the Lord. Why? 
Is the prayer of agreement powerful? Why are you like, brother, agree with me? Because if two or three are get, agree as touching anything, it will be done for them. Why is agreement a part of prayer? Why is unity a part of prayer? How could a, a human being being in agreement with you provide any more power to what God is able to do in your life? If you think about it that way, if you think about it the way that many people think about other Christians who don't believe that they need anyone else because it's just them and God, hopefully that they're not sick. Hopefully they're not sick because they're going to have to call for the presbyters. They're going to have to call for the elders of the church. And what happens is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. What? Do you think James knew what he was... This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Who does he think he is? The brother of the Lord? Who does he think he is? A leader in the church that was placed there by God himself? One of the people who Jesus appeared to? What, what's he talking about? What, why are you calling for the elders of the church to get prayer, to get healed, and to have your sins forgiven? If the church has nothing to do with the gospel. If the church has nothing to do with what the Lord supplied. Does it make any sense? Are we reading the same book? Do you read? Listen, is he describing some kind of magical formula? Is this some kind of alchemical structure of how to get someone healed? No, the Lord, the prayer of faith will raise up the sick. The Lord will raise him up, right? The Lord will raise him up. This is about the supernatural power of God. This is something that they could not do until they were empowered. Jesus said, tarry till you be endued with power. So that you can do what I've called you to do. This is not some kind of empty observance. This is something that has power in it. It is something that has power in it. And it's something that preaches the fundamental truth of the word of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then we arrive at the last one. And absolutely the most contentious. I don't think anybody would have reason to attack any of the institutions of the church if it wasn't for this one. Ordination. Ordination is the one. It's the one that gets people. They're they're throwing away the baby with the bathwater just to get rid of ordination. 
what is ordination? Well, let's go back to Paul. Paul started his ministry having to wait for a Christian to come and baptize him so his sins could be forgiven and so he could be healed. Jesus could have done it himself. But that's not what he came to build. That's not how he ordained that things should occur. Well, in the same way, how many of you know what Ananias told Paul? He told him then that you were called of the Lord, that you're a vessel of the Lord, that you'll go to the Gentiles and to all these people. The Lord was working with, through Paul. He, appeal, he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Physically. The other people there heard him, so it wasn't a vision. They didn't see Jesus, but they were like, ah, what's that? And they heard the voice, right? And then he appeared to him in a vision to tell him Ananias was coming. And then after Ananias baptized him, he received a vision from the Lord that he should leave and go out away from where he was because, you know, there was not a lot of people that were big fans of him at the time. You know, you make friends of the church, you make enemies of the enemies of the church. And Paul was in a special place to be a very, very annoying enemy. He was a traitor to the enemies of the church because he was a former enemy of the church. And so the Lord directed him to go. The Lord was speaking to Paul. Paul! Paul! Paul knew what he was called to do. But he never became Paul the Apostle. He never went out on his missionary journeys. He never did what he did. He never wrote an epistle until the day in Acts 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon the black, and Lucius of Serene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them. The Lord called Paul and Barnabas to be apostles. Right? In fact, the following verse says, after they'd fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them, and the Holy Ghost sent Paul and Barnabas. The Lord called Paul and Barnabas to be apostles. But he did not just tell Paul and Barnabas that. And Paul and Barnabas did not just pack up and leave. No, by... By having the church ordain Paul and Barnabas, those missions that were undertaken by Paul and Barnabas became the missions of the whole church. They became not just something that Paul and Barnabas were doing, but something that the whole church was doing together in unity. The souls and the lives that they won were not just one to Paul and Barnabas ministries, they were one to the body of Christ. They were one to the church. And so their ordination, 
Their call did not come from man. Just like John the Baptist did not call Jesus. But the Lord, the Lord established it in the church for that to be the method. So that by the hands of his body in the earth, his word would be confirmed. So just like his word on the road to Damascus was confirmed by Ananias coming and healing Paul and baptizing him. The word that he called Paul and Barnabas to be apostles was confirmed by the prayer and fasting and laying on of hands of the presbytery at Antioch, of the prophets and teachers at Antioch. He was already in the leadership in the church. So the Lord already had spoken. Hands had already been laid on him. He had already been placed in the church. It's not surprising. We see the same exact thing happen with the deacons. The deacons whose job it is to do something that any natural person would think is natural. But it's obvious that what the deacons received in their ordination was not something natural. The first martyr of the church was a deacon. The the apostle to Ethiopia in the first century was a deacon. But even the deacons were ordained. So that even the natural thing that they did, caring for the widows and waiting on tables, could be done supernaturally. And so the word that Jesus spoke, the call that the Lord gave to them, was confirmed by men and women of God. By the church. And so even the call has to be confirmed. And what is that? Listen, Paul told his son Timothy, who he ordained to be a bishop. Stir up. Listen to this. Because most of the people, a lot of, a lot of people today would think this is blasphemy. If Dr. Harfu said it. Or if any other person on the earth said it. Stir up the gift that is in thee by the laying on of my hands? Oh, everybody's got gifts. The Lord gives gifts to whoever he wants to give gifts to. What's Paul talking about? Paul is talking about Timothy's ordination. It was not just a graduation ceremony. It was not just a recognition that Timothy was the MVP. It was not an award. It was an impartation. When they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them, that wasn't just an outward sign. It was a source of supernatural power for Paul and Barnabas. And in the same way, Paul laying his hands on Timothy and ordaining him left a mark in Timothy's life. 
It's impartation. It left a deposit, a gift in Timothy's life that he could carry and rely on for the rest of his ministry. It deposited something supernatural in him. Now, is that because of Paul? No, it's because of the Lord. But it's because the Lord empowered Paul. It's because the Lord directed Paul. You know for a fact that Paul did not lay his hands suddenly on Timothy. He did not just pick a random person and go, you're a bishop, you're a bishop, you're a bishop. No, just like Antioch. Just like Antioch. They were in the spirit and the Lord directed them. The Lord came to Paul and said, lay hands on Timothy. And so the calling that Timothy had on his life was from the Lord. But the deposit that he received to fulfill that call came through the hands of Paul as a member of the body of Christ. Why would the Lord do it that way? Why would there be people that received the gospel who had to wait for an apostle to show up to lay hands on them so they could get the Holy Ghost? Why would the Lord restrict access to the church? That's not the right word to use because it's not about restriction. It is, he did it because that is what he's building. That is what he established. That is what he founded in the, in the earth. And people can speak against it all they want. They can talk against it all they want. But it is an inescapable reality of the gospel. And it is an inescapable reality of the function of the first century church. And so the devil has done everything in his power to try to rob these avenues of divine grace from being able to get the power of God over to people. By convincing them that the fact that all men are capable of hearing God and that God works through each and every one of us individually, we are all priests and kings. By the fact, by taking the fact that Jesus could appear personally to Paul, that Jesus could call Paul without anybody say so, when nobody else wanted Paul to get called. Right? By taking that fact and using that fact to ignore the fact that Jesus sent Ananias to baptize Paul. And Jesus had the leaders at Antioch ordain Paul. Ordain Paul to do the thing that he knew he was called to do. Paul spent 12 years in Arabia with God. Paul had all kinds of reasons to believe that he knew more than other people. But he knew that what God had brought him into was not to be a Pollocan. It was to be a Christian. It was to be a Christian. Right? Hallelujah. 
And so people, people, and I'm going to wrap up. I, I think I've gone over my time. Praise the Lord. But, but I told you I had a lot to get over to you. I told you I had a lot to get over to you. People try to take that away. They try to take away any kind of, of, of impartation, any kind of leadership, any kind of mentorship, any kind of special call, any type of special sanctification or, or consecration to God, any different way of living. They say, oh, well, that person might live every moment of their life reading the Bible and separated unto God, and they might have all these vows to God, but I'm exactly the same living my worldly life and going to church once a month because I'm saved too. How many of you know that's idiotic? How many of you know one of those people is getting more of what God has promised for them than the other one of those people? How many of you know that not everybody was called like Paul and Barnabas were called? And how many of you know that there's nothing wrong with that? Someone else being called of God does not limit your access to God. When the Bible talks about coveting earnestly the best gifts, it doesn't mean getting jealous of people with a call. It certainly doesn't mean acting like the best gifts don't exist. But why? Why do people want to steal that from the church? Why does the devil want to steal that from the church? Not for your benefit. To try to rob you of what Timothy had. To try to rob you of what Paul had. To try to rob you of what all of the men and women of God who were laid hands on by the apostles and instituted into the ministry had in their lives. The deposit that they had. Same thing with marriage. The devil wants to rob people of a supernatural marriage. They want, he wants to make it an earthly contract that does not provide any blessing to you at all. He wants to make it something that is under the rulership of a secular government or a secular state rather than something that God put into the earth to be a blessing. Right? Same thing with communion. He doesn't want you receiving the healing power of God every time you receive communion. He doesn't want you participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to be one bread, to be in unity with each other, to recognize. Think about this. Jesus sacrificed himself one time. He was the spotless lamb one time. Jesus isn't crucified every time you have communion. No, communion is the participation in the body and blood of Jesus. It's in remembrance of what happened, but it is a connection to that one sacrifice. So that means that every church in every nation of the world throughout every time Every communion is the same communion. Every communion is that one bread. It's not that one bread on July 
12th, right? It's not that one bread on, when, when Paul's talking about that one bread, it's not that one bread on August 6th of the year 45 AD and there's a different bread every Sunday. No, it's the one bread. It's the one bread that makes us one body. When we are having communion, it is the same communion as the apostles had in the presence of Jesus on that day. How many of you know the devil doesn't want you to get that blessing? How many of you know he doesn't want you to understand the incarnation? He doesn't want you to comprehend the unity of the church. Because as long as he keeps you from knowing about those things and believing on those things, he can keep you from receiving those things. If you think it's just bread and wine, then you will eat condemnation to yourself instead of blessing to yourself. If you believe that baptism is just a graduation ceremony, then you won't get anything out of it. If you think the Holy Ghost is just something invisible that does not provide any supernatural power, then you won't walk in it. You'll get all Christ-mated. And you'll be like, hallelujah, I received the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Because you haven't received any evidence of it. You don't know that you can now operate in it. You don't know that you're now empowered to do the things that Jesus did. You don't know that you've been endued with power if you don't know it. If you don't know that's available to you, you won't fight for it. If you are sick in your house and you don't know that you can call for the elders of the church and they don't know that they can anoint you with oil and pray the prayer of faith and you will be healed... You won't get healed. And so each and every one of those things that the Lord put in the church to be a source of supernatural blessing for us, the devil has tried to turn into something natural or symbolic to make it meaningless, to make it powerless how many of you know that it is not powerless, that it is powerful? How many of you are not going to let the devil steal anything from you? And, you're, and you recognize that those are things that the Lord put in the church for a reason. And people might try to fight against them because they don't believe in the church or because they don't believe in the incarnation. But we believe in the incarnation. And we believe in the church. And we believe in all the things that the Lord gave to the apostolic generation. And we believe that we are the apostolic generation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we will fight for those things. Hallelujah. 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 I hope you were blessed by that. Dr. Harfouche, Dr. Harfouche downloaded me. With that for you, how many of you know that the the whole Christian world and the whole world needs to hear that right now? Needs to hear that right now. Everything that you need is available in the church. 
everything that you need, all the power that you need. How many of you didn't know that Ananias was the apostle Ananias? Dr. Tarfush told me. I didn't know till he told me. And I, I, I looked it up. I was like, wow, how did I not know that? Right? How many of you didn't know he became the bishop of Damascus? How many of you, you know, just thought he was some rando? Well, praise God, none of us are randos in the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.